This is HPR episode 2213 entitled Clay Body. It is hosted by Brian and is about 11 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is Basic Clay Theory. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. This is Brian again. I think after listening to the community news, I should probably discuss some clay. I'm a potter. Ken gave me some friendly ribbing about having not submitted a pottery show. I recorded in the middle of my beeswax rant while the heat gun was rolling what I want to do as my first clay project for anybody, no matter who they are. And it's very simple, but I figure we should do some background because in the world of programming, I consider myself to know basically nothing. And I realize that Every tutorial that I ever find, any book that I pick up and begin reading, they always begin with defining what programming is before they have you even write a hello world. So what is the goal of this programming that we're doing? And I'm going to kind of apply that to my episode structure here and do a basics. What do we mean when we say pottery? What we mean is this mineral deposit and clay when we make a pot is only one component of what we would call the clay body. The clay body is what colloquially is called clay. If you buy clay at the store, for whatever firing temperature, it will be a clay body. Perhaps that clay body comes straight out of the ground as it is. Most likely it does not. Most likely the clay body is formulated from a number of different minerals that are pulverized to aid the clay in its holding structure, workability, the plasticity, which is what is pretty self-explanatory. In clay, the opposite of plasticity we call short. We say the clay is short or the clay is plastic. And the longer the clay ages in a workable form, in its consistency, in that moisture content, if it's too dry, then it won't actually age. 
And if it's too wet, then it won't actually age because what's happening in the aging is that all of these tiny, tiny particles of clay are aligning there because it's basically alive as much as the earth is alive. The clay particles are broke down mountains, ground to dust. So bottom of the mountain, you end up with this super pure white clay, a kaolin of sorts, or that would be considered a primary clay. It is exactly where it was formed. And that's why it's so pure white. The secondary clays, more of the ball clays, they're finer in particulate size, which aids to their plasticity. They've collected a little bit of mineralization as they've been moved. And then we have the tertiary clays, our common surface red clays that are really unpure as far as the actual clay content. Most of the tertiary clays are clay bodies right out of the ground. So in the clay bodies that we're looking for, we commonly have low fire earthenware and we have high fire stoneware. And the porcelains are more the purest of the clays, but there is nowhere that I know of where porcelain as a clay body comes straight out of the ground. Even in China, in the birthplace of porcelain, it is this kaolin deposit that's mixed with a feldspar and silicas, and I'm not sure exactly what the recipes are, but that's usually the process. Your basic porcelain recipe is... 25% of your four main ingredients, your kaolin, your ball clay, your silica, and your feldspar. And 25% of each will give you that classic diner porcelain. It's very short. It's not very plastic, so it's not easy to work on the wheel. Um, but it is a nice, durable, basic porcelain. If you want to formulate your own porcelain, what you do is you would begin with that in mind. And now you have those percentages. The best thing to do for your clay body is to vary because you're using mineral deposits from the ground. They will vary. So if I'm only using one kaolin in my recipe and something happens at that mine and it, this, my clay changes just a little bit, it could have huge impacts on my pottery. So it's always nice to space them out. Maybe use two different kaolins, maybe three different kaolins, maybe two, three different feldspars. And that's where you end up with these complex recipes. And a lot of that is just to guard against flaws in the minerals because they stay extremely pure and very consistent for a really long period of time. But there are these tiny changes. And those tiny changes will introduce bugs into the code in your pot. And what we're working with in the clay body, once we structure everything together, we now have clay and we're going to turn it into ceramic. So to do that, we have to heat it through what the temperature point that's called quartz inversion. And it's in a very layman's term where all of the structures of those molecules destabilize and the crystalline quartz is no longer in a crystalline structure. And the point that that happens is 
just before your red heat. So if it's glowing, you're through quartz inversion. When it goes through quartz inversion, the pots have a drastic thermal change in size. So it's real important to do that real slow so they don't crack. And also on the way down. Other than that, you can basically go as fast as you want. There are other issues with Cristobalite where upon cooling from that quartz inversion, when you come back through, you end up with free silica that's still not crystallized into quartz. And that can be forming these micro silica crystalline structures called cristobalite that can be forming all the way down into your oven temperature. So on your first high firing of these pots, you want to really make sure you don't open that door until they're good and cool. So we're working with the alignment of the clay particles in the building of these wares. And the if we have the clay in a good, soft, workable state and we let it age, those particles will tend to align magnetically. And that's actually an interesting side note on the historical value because when we fire the clay, all of that alignment happens geomagnetically toward magnetic north. So in archaeological sites, in a fire pit in the ground, if it was fired up through quartz inversion, through red heat in that, those clay particles in the ground, because they fused into ceramic in the fire pit, they can tell by knowing our, our calculations of plate tectonics, the pretty darn close age of the last time someone had a fire in that fire pit because the particles realigned toward where magnetic north was at that site at that point. So we're working with these particles and their alignment has a memory and it has a memory while you're making it. And while you're making it, if you have a flat slab of clay and you grab one edge and you bend it up, it's going to remember that. If you don't take action to try to reset the memory of that clay, even though you don't see that, it might present itself in your firing or in your drying. Um, the clay bodies tend to shrink 10 to 14% from wet workability to final second glaze firing because first you fire it to a bisque, to a biscuit fire so that it can be handled real easily. And you know that if you had a flaw in your making that it would survive your glaze fire because flaws in the making can create a bomb in the kiln that basically blows up and throws stuff everywhere. And if you're firing a glaze, all those pieces will stick to your glaze pots. And they'll, for most purposes, be ruined. Um, so you want all that stuff to get out of the way in a preliminary firing where if anything breaks, it doesn't matter because nothing is going to stick. We're not forming glass. And the glaze is nothing but glass stabilized with clay. And we use a little bit of different metals for the different colorings and opacities. And that's a whole real interesting thing. Maybe that'll happen in a show here one day, many moons from now. So 
let's just do this first episode. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.